Thank you, choir. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of John chapter 17, John chapter 17, and we are going to continue today in the series that we've been in called Burning Questions. Let me just say, first of all, for those who uh, worked with our kids this week for music camp, just an awesome job. I'm always struck whenever the kids are up here, usually a couple times a year, we'll get the kids up here leading us in worship, and I'm always struck by the fact that, um, you know, they show us what real faith looks like, right? It's that childlike faith, it's just that unbridled joy and trust in God. And then at the same time, I'm reminded, and I'm grateful for this, that I'm not the only one who doesn't always have the inability to dance. And so I'm uh, always excited for that as well. The, 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 the kids remind me that maybe I'm not the worst dancer in the church after all. So we are glad you're here. Today, we're continuing the series, Burning Questions. So here's the premise of the series. Through the summer, June and July, we've been giving folks an opportunity, whether in our church or online, outside of our church, to ask what we call burning questions. Now, burning questions are those questions that, you know, they just sort of are simmering down in your heart and your mind somewhere. And the specific topic for this series is Christianity, burning questions about Christianity. So you never want to raise your hand, right, and ask them publicly. You wouldn't want your name maybe ascribed to that particular question, but you're glad to do it anonymously. And so all these questions have been turned in anonymously. Now, we've gotten a lot of questions, I'm guessing, probably 60 or more that have come in, and a lot of those are really good. There's no way, because we'll be skipping Christmas series and everything else in between, right, if I did all of the questions. So we can't get to all of them. We're about to wrap up the series soon. Not all of them really tied in with Christianity, but they were good questions nonetheless. But there are some others, man. They were just solid, solid questions. And so I've been out a little bit this summer, and I've given all the really hard ones to the other guys that have filled in for me, and I've chosen the ones that aren't so hard. So that's just pure wisdom there, folks, is what that is. What that is. And so I don't know if you recognize that or not. So today we're going to jump back in, right? Another burning question. And, and honestly, it really is. Uh, it's a great question. It was only asked by, uh, by one person. I remember there was another that asked it kind of uh, in, in a little bit of a different way. Uh, but it's just very simple, clear, and to the point. So let's go ahead and jump in. It was emailed kind of in back in May uh, before the series even started. And the question, it's really a burning comment, not as much a burning question, I guess. The Trinity, I'd like to understand it better. Which is such an easy question, right? Just a softball toss on out there for Brooks to be able to handle. So the Trinity, I'd like to understand it better. Now, here's what I'd be willing to say, that for most of us, if you have a relationship with God, if you've been in church you know, for, for any amount of time at all, uh, you probably have asked the same question, right, as a believer, because you've wanted to know, you've wanted to kind of expand your knowledge about who God is, and you've been curious, and you've wondered, right? I don't understand the Trinity. I don't quite know how all of it unpacks, and so maybe for you, you've asked the same question. I can promise you, for those who are outside the church, who don't have a relationship with God, in different ways, they're also asking this same question because it has everything to do about who God is. Now, let me say, here's why this question is so important, because it, it, it impacts whether we get it right or whether we get it wrong. It impacts the way we see God. It impacts the way we see prayer. It impacts the way we see worship. It impacts the way we live every single day, right? And, and so what, what I want us to do this morning is we're going to look at a number of different verses. I don't always bounce all through Scripture, uh, but today we're going to do that. So you're just going to have to give me a little bit of freedom. We're going to bounce through Scripture. John 17, we're going to get there towards the end of the message. So hold your spot. And what I'm going to do is we're going to move through different passages, helping us to understand a little better from Scripture what the Trinity even refers to and how we can understand that better. And then also the implications of that for our lives every single day. So that's going to be the goal. That's, that's going to be what we're going to aim for ultimately. So 
So, so what is the Trinity? When, when you talk about this concept called the Trinity, we have to define exactly what that's talking about because not every religious group embraces the Trinity, right? Now, it is foundational to the Christian faith. You can't have Christianity. That's why this question is great for the series, Burning Questions, Christianity, because you can't have Christianity if you don't hold to the doctrine of, of, of the Trinity. I mean, it, it's, it's impossible. It, it is the, the hinge on which all of the whole entire Christian faith swings. There are so many implications that come out of understanding what the Trinity is and what Scripture has to say about that. So, so what is it? So for us, we have to understand and, and keep in mind that Scripture frames for us the whole picture of the Trinity. And the, the Trinity is this. It's a belief and an understanding that we serve one God. There is one God in existence, not many gods, as Hinduism would hold to. There's not a multiplicity of gods, a God here and a God there and a God there and a God there. No, it's the belief that there is one God who has revealed himself in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, if you've been in church for very long at all, if you've uh, uh, been a part of, of witnessing a baptism, you probably have heard that phrase, right? Baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why is that? It's because of what the Bible teaches us about the concept of the Trinity. One God, one and only one God, who exists, having revealed himself eternally as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. So let's just walk through Scripture a little bit and see what the Bible says about this specifically. Deuteronomy chapter 6. You don't have to turn here. You can follow me on the overhead. Deuteronomy chapter 6 helps us to understand the Bible's teaching of God being one God. Look at what it says. This is a, a very common passage of Scripture, especially for those who may have been raised in Judaism, right? You're, you'd be familiar with this. It's called the Shema. And it says in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one, right? So very, very clear. When we think of God, we don't have the freedom to be able to kind of mold God or define God the way we want him to be in our own terms, right? Maybe you've heard that mentioned in our culture at times. Well, to me, God is. Well, there, there's no, we don't have the freedom to do that. God is whoever the Bible says he is, right? God is whoever he wants to be. And we've been, we've had that explained to us clearly in scripture. But one of the most foundational teachings of the Bible in relation to God is that he is one God. The Jews understood this early on. All throughout the rest of scripture, we see that affirmed that God is one God. And it goes on to say here, then that our response is to love him, to love him with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and with all of our, with, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, right? Jesus would affirm this. In fact, later in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus would be asked a question. It was kind of to trip him up, but man, he nailed it. The question was asked, Jesus, so what is the most important command in all the Bible? You know, of all these commands in the Bible, what do you say, Jesus, is the most important? This is what he said. He said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Why is that? Because God is one God. There, there are not many to choose from. There is one true living God without beginning, without end, who created us and everything we see. God is one. So where does the Trinity come into this? Remember, he's revealed himself as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. So let's take a look specifically on the overhead here. Philippians chapter 1, verse 2. Paul is writing to the believers in Philippi. And, and this is just the introduction, right, of his letter. It's the first chapter, second verse. It, it doesn't seem very important, but he, he is making a point here. He says to the Philippians, grace to you and peace from, from who? From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So if you were to ask Paul, all right, Paul, greatest missionary who ever walked this earth, writer of the, the, the bulk of the New Testament. So Paul, who, who do you believe God is? Paul would say partly the answer to that question is that God is Father. And he says it right there in chapter 1, verse 2 in Philippians. Paul would also write a letter to Titus, and he would have a little bit to say about the Son, about Jesus, and about the deity of Jesus. Look at what he says here in this letter to Titus, specifically how he talks about the deity of Christ. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory, catch this, of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. All right, so what Paul is saying here, he's still speaking of one God. He's speaking of God as Father to the Philippians. Here to Titus, he's speaking as God, uh, as the Son, as Jesus. But what about the Holy Spirit? There's a, a scene that unfolds in the book of Acts, chapter 5. It's the early days of the church. And uh, the church has just been birthed into existence just three chapters before and it's kind of an infancy, right? It, it, the church is sort of gaining traction in the culture. And there was this couple in the church, Ananias and Sapphira, and uh, they, they tried to pull a fast one on God here. And God would deal really swiftly and, uh, uh, and very forthrightly with this, with this couple. They, they tried to pull a fast one. They, they had kind of made a, uh, uh, an act of giving that they counted off as worship, and they tried to paint this picture that they had been so incredibly generous where really, in fact, it wasn't the whole story. And uh, in Acts chapter 5, it helps us to see a little bit of what was going on in their hearts. And it's in this passage that we learn a little bit more about the Holy Spirit as well. Look at what it says here, Acts chapter 5. So Peter says to Ananias, one of these, these two in the couple who had held back from God, he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? All right, hang on to that phrase. Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back some of the price of the land, the land that was sold, and again, they kind of pass it off as they had given all this money when in reality they had not. Well, while it remained unsold, Peter says to him, didn't it remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? Why have you tried to pull a fast one? He says, you have not lied to men, but to God. So early on in the conversation, Peter says that the Holy Spirit, that they had lied to the Holy Spirit. Later in the conversation, he says, listen, when you lied to the Holy Spirit, you weren't lying to some impersonal force out there. You weren't lying to, uh, to just anybody. You were lying to God himself. And when we put all this together, what we see is this picture that we call the Trinity, that there is one God in existence, and it's the God who made you, and he created you, and his fingerprints are all over your life. And yet he has revealed himself eternally as Father and as Son, and as Holy Spirit. Now, here's the thing. When we begin to unpack this, sometimes there can be real confusion. And so I came across a diagram. Uh, I'm not creative enough to come up with this diagram. I am creative enough to find it online. And so this is a diagram, won't you see? I actually came across this back in seminary, honestly. And uh, man, to me, it was just really helpful. And it's a diagram to help us to understand because that was the burning question, you know, to understand the Trinity. So this is a good, a good reminder that, that when we think of God, He is one God. He is Father, He is Son, He is Holy Spirit. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is distinct from the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Son is distinct from the Father and the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is distinct from the Father and the Son. And yet all through Scripture what we find is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are held out as God. And yet we worship one God. Let me just pause here for a second. If we wait until we understand every minute detail about God before we choose to follow Him or to worship Him, listen, we will never follow Him and we will never worship Him. We have to be really careful that we don't idolize answers to our own questions to where we worship our own knowledge before worshiping God for who He is. See, He's already told us, hasn't He, everything we need to know about Him. He's laid out, I just took a few minutes to do this, just from a few scriptures. There's others we could have gone to. He's laid out for us exactly who he is. And in this book, in scripture, he's told us enough about, told us enough about himself to know exactly who he is, that he is one God. There are no others. There is no rival. There are no counterfeits that are worthy of our worship, worthy of our praise, worthy of our following, right? There is one true living God who has existed independent from us. He has existed without beginning and without end. And he has shown himself to us us in history as Father, as Son, as Holy Spirit. We can't fully understand that this side of eternity. We can't fully grasp that this side of eternity, but we have to make a decision. Are we going to believe it and trust it and live based on it, or are we not? And so the Bible has laid out for us all these beautiful pictures of God. Now, so, so you may be wondering, well, well, where does the Bible actually tell us that there is a trinity. Well, well there, the Bible doesn't use the word trinity anywhere in there. Now, now for some of you, I'm not going to knock on, I don't typically knock on other uh, Christian belief systems, obviously, but there are some belief systems out there that are counterfeit Christian in, in, uh, in nature, right? One of those would be Jehovah's Witnesses. So if you've ever had a conversation with someone who's come knocking on your door as a Jehovah's Witness, as I have, maybe you have had, you've been made speechless because they kind of rolled out to you when you had conversations about the Trinity and about the deity of Jesus. Maybe they've made comment to you to say, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, right? Any of you ever heard that, by the way? I'm just curious. Any of you? All right, some of you. You want to say, well, neither is Kingdom Hall, right? But you don't have a problem with that either, right? So that's probably not going to get you any, any, you know, any hearing, right? So you probably don't want to go there. Maybe once the door closes and you say it to yourself, I guess you could. Right? But the word Trinity is not in the Bible. You're right. But the concept of the Trinity is very, very clear. So where are some passages where we do seem to see this picture of God as Father, as Son, and his Holy Spirit. Well, let me just show you a few real briefly. One is in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 26. Take a look at this. This is awesome. So, so the first message of the series, we talked about Scripture. And the question was asked, the burning question, about a month and a half ago. So what's up with all the contradictions in the Bible? Well, we talked about that. That what we often call contradiction is no contradiction at all. And so we unpacked that, we looked at that. And what we established at the beginning of the series was that God's Word is our authority. That it's inspired by God. So let's look at this passage here behind me. And remember, God would have inspired every word for a reason. So look at what he says here. So God said, this is the first chapter of the whole entire Bible, verse 26. So God said, let us make man in our image. Plural, right? Us is plural, our is plural, according to our likeness. 
And let him rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God is the one who created. And he identifies himself here in the very first chapter of the Bible. He identifies himself using the plural. Not that he is many gods, he is a one God, but that he has revealed himself as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. The reason he speaks in the plural here is because before the creation of the world, he existed, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in perfect unity. And even in the wording there, he lays it out for us to see exactly who he is. So move forward into the New Testament. Jesus in Matthew chapter 3 is being baptized. Such an interesting passage of Scripture. He's not being baptized because he's sinned and been made right, right, that he's been forgiven. Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. He's being baptized as a model for us. And yet, look at what it says here in Matthew chapter 3, this inspired passage of Scripture. It says, after being baptized, Jesus, God the Son, came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens, this would be God the Father, said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What an awesome picture there, right? God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all right there on the scene. This is a pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry. And it's interesting that at the most pivotal moment of Jesus' ministry, that we see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit on the scene. It was pivotal because this was the beginning, this was the inauguration of his ministry. This is where his public ministry would begin. And to me, it, 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 it's, it's really significant that when, that when we see this picture, that God almost in a sense is just authenticating who he is. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And Matthew captured it in chapter 3. You move to the end of the book of Matthew. Jesus' ministry is coming to a close now. He's been crucified. He's been resurrected. He's about to go back to the Father Look at what he says, Matthew 28, verse 19. Go, therefore, he says, this is you and me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus, right? This is what he says. He didn't say baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and whichever pastor happens to be doing the baptism. He didn't say that. He didn't say baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Whichever missionary in the Amazon basin reached you with the gospel and is actually the one who's there to baptize you. He didn't say baptize that way. He didn't say baptize in the name of your grandma who first shared the message of the gospel with you. He didn't say baptize in the name of your teacher who was a believer who influenced you to follow Jesus. He didn't say any of that. But what he's saying here is that when a person is baptized, it is a miracle that has taken place. I think we miss the fact of this. Sometimes we miss the beauty of what takes place and the enormity of what takes place at salvation. That when a person places their faith in Jesus, man, whether they are an eight-year-old who may have just sung up here on this platform earlier, or whether it's an 80-year-old who finally heard the gospel, who finally got it, and the blindness stripped away, when a person gives their life to Jesus, man, it is the greatest miracle you can ever even imagine. I mean, we pray, God, do you still do miracles? Yes, he does miracles. Every single time somebody ultimately hears the gospel and lays down their sin, for goodness sake, and says, you know what? I'm not going to be the boss of my life anymore. I place my faith in Jesus. I believe in him. I believe in what he's done. And I'm going to turn from my sin, and I give my life to Jesus. And in heaven, what happens is that person's sin is just completely removed, taken off their account. 
And God takes the righteousness of his own son, Jesus, and he, boom, plops it right right down in their heart, right down in their life, and he changes their nature. The old is gone, the new has come, death is gone, life has come. You talk about a miracle, gracious of living, man, that's the greatest miracle ever. And when Jesus says, now this person is going to be baptized and show themselves as a follower of Jesus, he says, be sure you baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because only God could do this. Only God could meet a person dead in their sin and give them life. So what is the what does the whole understanding of the Trinity mean for us? I mean, we've seen, I, I, hopefully, I think pretty clearly that the Bible affirms an understanding of the Trinity, right? God is one God. He's Father, He's Son, He's Holy Spirit. Why is it important then that we embrace that accurate view? And again, I made the comment earlier that Christianity is not Christianity without, without the truth of the Trinity. Why is it so crucial? Here's why. Let me just give you a few reasons. You can jot these down if you want. First reason that we have to embrace an accurate view of the Trinity is because if we reject that understanding of the Trinity, it results in rejecting Jesus' work on the cross. If we don't hold it, and just hear me, this is not just a bunch of doctrinal mumbo-jumbo. Right? This is foundational. This stuff, this is so important. So, so follow me here. Take it down to the end of the road. If we reject the doctrine of the Trinity, if, if we do not hold that Jesus is God... As I said before, a cult is a cult largely because of what they do with the belief in the Trinity. They take away the deity of Jesus, take away the deity of the Holy Spirit. If we reject the Trinity, it results in rejecting the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. And and here's why. Because if Jesus is not God, listen, on that hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, another good man died. Right? Just another good man died. But if we understand the concept of the Trinity, that Jesus is God, that when he died on that cross, he died not just as a perfect man. That was necessary, right? Uh, Bulls and goats and lambs would not be good enough. We needed somebody to take my place, to take our place. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he died as perfect man, as our substitute. But when he died on the cross, he also died ultimately as perfect God, right? Who was not just our substitute, he was our sacrifice that we needed, a perfect, spotless, without blemish sacrifice that took our place. And so when we embrace the Trinity, we embrace a Savior, Jesus, who came and paid what we couldn't pay. And what that often does is, as we come to grips with that and we understand that, what that does is it moves us to greater worship because when we're singing songs about Jesus and when we're singing songs to Jesus, what that means is we're singing songs about our rescue. I mean, we had no hope without him before. I mean, we were lost. We had, we, we were, we were hopeless. We were undone. We had no rescue plan unless he steps in and does what only he could have done. And he could have only done that (laughs) if he's God. Take away the Trinity. We take away the work that Jesus finished on the cross. Second thing that, that, we, that we can 
be grateful for as we embrace this concept of the Trinity is that if we choose not to embrace it, if we reject this whole concept of the Trinity, we also at the same time remove the possibility of being saved by grace through faith. Let me go back to one of those cults again. Cults are often cults because of what they do with Jesus or what they do with the Holy Spirit often. A lot of other factors too, but primarily that. When that Jehovah's Witness is knocking on your door, they're knocking on your door for their salvation more than they are yours. Right? It's a works-based, twisted, contorted view of the gospel. But at the end of the day, when the dust settles, it's a works-based understanding of being made right with their view of who God is. So they're knocking on your door and they're spreading the word, trying to earn their way into heaven. It would make perfect sense, right? Because if you take away the deity of Jesus, as Jehovah's Witness doctrine does, and if you treat him as just another good man who died, that it was sufficient to get you to first base, but not all the way home in your relationship with God. If that's the way you see Jesus and you strip him of his deity, then it makes perfect sense that you're going to have to work your way to God because grace no longer applies. See, when we reject the Trinity and we reject the deity of Jesus, it's very, very dangerous because it trickles down then into our view of salvation, into our view of how we live our lives, into our view of worship, into every other aspect of our life. But when we understand who God is, that He's Father who sent His Son, that He's Holy Spirit who seals us when we give our lives to Christ, when we understand that that's who God is, I mean, we understand and we're grateful for His grace that when we place our faith in Christ, we're made right with Him, not just in that moment, <laughs> but for all of eternity. And so if we reject the Trinity, it re ultimately removes the possibility of us being saved by grace through faith. The third thing, if we reject the Trinity, it also removes the legitimacy of our worship and our prayer. Uh, the scripture says in Romans chapter 8, take a look at this. I think we've got this on the overhead, if we can, if we can bring that one up, Emily, if you will. Romans chapter Chapter 8, look at what it says about the Holy Spirit. I'm not smart enough to understand how all this plays out, but it's true nonetheless. It says, in the same way, the Spirit, right, God the Holy Spirit, also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself, <laughs> interestingly, uses the word himself, not itself, himself, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Man, have you ever been in that place in your life where you just did not have the words to pray? Rebecca made mention earlier of the, the folks in our church recently who have lost loved ones. Have you ever been in that place of loss, of heartache, of confusion, of discouragement, where you didn't quite know how to pray, but as a believer, you were still encouraged because you knew God somehow saw down through all of the muck and all of the mire and all the confusion and all the hurt, and He knew your heart, and, and the Holy Spirit was there to pray and to intercede in a way that you couldn't fully understand, but it brought peace to you. I don't understand. I don't know how all this unpacks. God didn't quite give us enough of the whole picture to understand why the Holy Spirit intercedes or why that's even necessary. All I know is, is that the Holy Spirit, God himself, knows our heart, hears our prayers, and is even willing to pray for us when we can't pray for ourselves. That is powerful. And we understand God for who he is. We see the enormity, man, of what he's done for us. We didn't deserve an ounce of it. <laughs> That's what fuels worship. 
That's what causes us to want to have conversation and to pray to a God like that. So when we understand who he is, when we embrace the Trinity, it takes our worship, it takes our prayer to a whole different level. Finally, number four, embracing the Trinity helps us to understand our whole entire walk with God as believers just a little bit better. Towards the end of Jesus' ministry and his walk on earth, he would pray to the Father. He prayed what's called the high priestly prayer, John chapter 17. If you, if you look in John 17, you held your place there. It's pretty much all in red. And this is Jesus' prayer back to the Father. Maybe you've been confused through the years. Why would Jesus pray to the Father? Maybe you've even had someone try to confuse you there and say, oh, Jesus is really God. Why did he pray to the Father? <laughs> I mean, you've probably heard that one before if you've had any of those front doorstep conversations, right? It's, it's the way God operates. He reveals himself three distinct persons. And when Jesus was on this earth, he operated under in submission to the will of the Father. He never laid aside his deity. And in John 17, he's praying. And he prays this high priestly prayer. And it's interesting because in John 17, he's praying for you and he's praying for me as believers. He's praying for the disciples there. He's praying for the current followers of his in John 17. And then he's praying for those that are going to come, you and me, that are going to trust him. And look at what he prays. He's asking certain things of the Father for us as believers. And he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word right? That, 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 that's reference to us. He is praying here in John 17, 2,000 years ago for those who ultimately will hear the gospel and place their own faith in Jesus. And here's his prayer, verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. <laughs> that is, that's a powerful thought. Here's what it sounds like Jesus is saying. That when you want an analogy of, of, of the Trinity, you know, we can think of all these different illustrations that all fall short because you can't capture God and who he is just in a little basic human illustration. But what it seems that Jesus is saying here is that he is saying, Father, in the same way that you and I and the Holy Spirit for all of eternity have enjoyed unity together, that is my aim for those who follow me that they be unified, that they be one, that they're not scattered, that they don't backbite and fight, that they don't disagree over every single meaningless little thing, but where the rubber hits the road, that this world knows that these people are mine because they love each other and they're committed to each other. And that they're unified not just together, but with us. That was his goal. That is his goal. And in a strange way, it seems like Jesus says that when the world wants to know, God, what, what we look like, all they have to do is look at our followers. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Man, what a powerful thought. For those who tend to think, great, I could have been on the golf course and now I hear a doctrinal exposition on the Trinity, right? Just what I was hoping for on a Sunday morning. 
It's a lot bigger than that, man. Because this lost world that Jesus died for, including those who try to redefine him in error, this whole world that Jesus died for, he's already paid the sacrifice. He's already, he's already finished the work. He calls us through the Spirit to himself. He is drawing people to himself. But perhaps from what he says in John 17, the greatest exhibit A is not praying for another miracle so people will believe. It's when his people love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And when we love our neighbor as ourself. And when we're together as one family under one God, living to his glory. And that neighbor you got on the other side of the fence, and that coworker three cubicles down that drives you nuts, and that person at the checkout line and that stranger and that coach of your kid's ball team and all those people that you can think of that you just wish they had a relationship with God. They don't have to understand the Trinity first, but they do have to know Christ. And one of the greatest ways they're going to know him is when they see him lived out in a life of worship and praise and joy because you see him for who he is. The God who sent his son to die for you rose again, and a Holy Spirit who drew you to himself, who's committed himself to you in a way where he will never, ever let you go. And if you don't know him today, (laughs) man, the heavy lifting's already been done. And he's not waiting for you to understand every question or to get every answer first. He's just wanting your childlike trust and faith. And maybe for some of you today, you've never placed your faith in Christ. Right where you sit today, you can for the first time. And if you only say, Lord Jesus, I'm ready to lay down my sin and to follow you with all my heart. Listen, he'll hear you and he will answer you and he will take over. And your life will never be the same. If you've done that, hey man, why not worship him like you've never worshiped before? Because he, our one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit alone is worthy. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that um, it just speaks deeply into our lives. God, you write your word in a way that's easy for us to understand and embrace. Sometimes we just make it so difficult. And Lord, there are hard things here. There, there are areas, I mean, we, we can't expect that men with pens 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago when they set out to write inspired by the Holy Spirit would be able to capture through pen and paper every nuance of who you are. Lord, it it would be impossible. You're bigger than that. And God, if we understood everything already about you, we probably wouldn't need you. You are creator. We are created. You are independent. We are totally dependent on you. And God, you haven't told us the answer to every single question, but God, you've given us your word that you've written, that you've sustained and given to us, Lord, to answer the questions that we need answered. And Lord, what a beautiful picture of who you are, that there is only one God, and that one God, you yourself, have chosen to love us and to show mercy and grace towards us. And when we didn't deserve it, you came anyway. And you paid the price we couldn't pay for ourselves. And Lord, even through your Holy Spirit, you draw people, maybe even right now today, to turn from sin that just brings wreckage and devastation and heartache, to lay it down and to find forgiveness and a new start and a brand new heart and life eternal 
through a relationship with Jesus. But God, we got to trust. And we got to follow. And so I pray today for those that have never made that choice, that right where they sit, Lord, in childlike faith, that they'll pray, Lord Jesus, and invite you to come in and to forgive and to take over. And for those of us that have done that, God, we wouldn't think ourselves better than anyone else, that we wouldn't exclude anyone, God, that we would just be passionate to share that message with everybody you bring across our path because eternity depends on it. So thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for who you are. Bless now our response and our worship. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's